So we see a, a wide range of cardiomyopathies. And I think really the important point is that we've now entered an era where we have increasing numbers of targeted therapies for cardiomyopathy. And so it's no longer enough to give, um, you know, a sort of phenotypic description of the cardiomyopathy and leave it at that. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, very excited to have Dr. Anjali Owens with us on the podcast to sort of wrap up uh, the series on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, this series is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. And this podcast is intended for uh, use by healthcare professionals in the United States. Um, so uh, Dr. Owens is uh, a heart failure slash transplant cardiologist at University of Pennsylvania. She uh, directs the Inherited Cardiovascular Diseases Program um, at uh, UPenn and also um, the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Center um, and you know has had an interest in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy among other inherited cardiomyopathies uh, within cardiovascular diseases. And um, we're grateful and excited to have her on the show sort of to wrap things up for us for this uh, three-episode mini-series um, on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, Dr. Owens, uh, welcome uh, to the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Thank you for the invitation, Dr. Cholera. It's my pleasure to be here today. Um, so, um, you know, the previous two episodes, um, you know, with Carolyn Ho and with Ahmad Masri, we talked about the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, and sort of the algorithmic approach toward diagnosing it in the office, you know, or if there is a patient who's referred to you with a question on whether or not he or she has a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and then going over some of the management algorithms, and particularly with the math, we, we talked about septal reduction therapies. Um, and I think um, it may be worthwhile as well as, um, you know, vital for our listenership, our audience to sort of learn from you um, you know, as you also take care of patients with other inherited cardiovascular disease conditions, uh, maybe some of the mimickers of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that you encounter as you are um, going over the diagnostic algorithm for, you know, ascertaining uh, patients who are sent to you with a question on whether or not they may have a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Absolutely. It's, you know, a really critical part of the diagnostic pathway is to make sure that you're making an accurate diagnosis in terms of the underlying etiology of the cardiomyopathy. Yes. So, um, you know, in terms of um, some of the mimickers that you may encounter for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, what are some of the common ones that you uh, you know, would, would encounter in a cardiology clinic or maybe in an inherited cardiomyopathy or in an inherited cardiovascular diseases clinic? So we see a, a wide range of cardiomyopathies. And I think really the important point is that we've now entered an era 
where we have increasing numbers of targeted therapies for cardiomyopathy. And so it's no longer enough to give, um, you know, a sort of phenotypic description of the cardiomyopathy and leave it at that. For example, dilated cardiomyopathy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. When you see left ventricular hypertrophy, which is what we'll delve into today, it's really important to say what is causing the hypertrophy in this patient. And to do that, we typically have a structured approach to our evaluation of a new patient. We, of course, gather all of the history and data and records that come from other cardiologists or primary care physicians. But we really take a step back on that first visit, and we start with um, history from the beginning, because oftentimes you can understand what the etiology of the of the hypertrophy is by the age of onset. So there are different conditions that would present in childhood or young adulthood as opposed to the elderly. So as an example, we are more likely to find a metabolic condition um, or rasopathy like Noonan syndrome in a young child who's presenting during childhood and more likely to encounter something like transthyretin amyloid in an older person. So we really start at the beginning and take that lifelong history. The other thing that's important, and we'll talk more about cardiac specific phenotyping and using imaging, um, using EKG. But the other thing that's also important, I think is a good review of systems. And this is where you get extra cardiac manifestations that can lead you down one path or another. These can become critically important red flags that come up in your history that may say we need further diagnostic testing. Some of that may be molecular or genetic testing to really understand what the underlying etiology is. Yes, you mentioned um, EKG, you mentioned um, you know, also left ventricular hypertrophy. And I think what was um, you know, fascinating for me was um, your comment on how can we just not leave in 2023 a patient with a diagnosis of, you know, for example, left ventricular hypertrophy alone? Um, and um, uh, I, I think this is how I, this is what I understood from your comment there. And, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, were you alluding to some of the uh, genetic or molecular pathways of, you know, further um, uh, establishing diagnoses here in, in such patients. I know hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is one of the differential, uh, you know, you mentioned EKG and certainly that is one aspect of the diagnostic algorithm that I tune into, you know, to see if, uh, the degree of hypertrophy that I, uh, uh, see on the echocardiogram is matching with the voltage criteria on the EKG. And if it's quite the opposite, you know, meaning if, if the QRS complexes or low voltage, then, you know, that certainly is a red flag for me for furthering the diagnostic algorithm or process for, you know, cardiac amyloidosis, for example. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll stop here and I'll certainly let the expert speak. Yeah, no, definitely. You, you've got it spot on. So um, if you're looking at a patient and you're trying to determine is this sarcomeric HCM, which is due to a pathogenic variant in one of the genes encoding the sarcomere proteins, or is this something else? Is this a mimicker that looks like HCM, which means you can see left ventricular hypertrophy um, on the echo, but it's not actually HCM. What are those other conditions of non-sarcomeric causes of hypertrophy? And within those buckets, I would say broadly, you can consider them as 
um, storage disorders or infiltrative disorders. And I would put within that category, amyloid as an infiltrative condition, storage conditions such as Anderson Febre disease or PRKG2 related cardiomyopathy or Dannon disease. And then the more um, syndromic or metabolic conditions, including Noonan syndrome, mitochondrial disease, and then even neuromuscular diseases that we once in a while in clinic a couple of times a year diagnose a patient um, with something like myotonic dystrophy or Friedrich ataxia. So there's a wide spectrum of the differential diagnosis when you see left ventricular hypertrophy. And another thing that we shouldn't forget um, is garden variety uh, hypertensive heart disease. That can be increasingly difficult to differentiate from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So you also want to keep that condition on your list. Um, and even more rarely, you'll occasionally get a case of sarcoid or an inflammatory cardiomyopathy that can look like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So it's a pretty wide differential. Um, and the way I like to approach it in clinic and we teach our fellows is that if you don't think about it, you're not going to be able to diagnose this. So keep your differential broad at the beginning as you see a patient. And then as you take the history, you narrow down that review of systems. Importantly, on the review of systems, you're going to ask for the extra cardiac manifestations like, do you have a rash? Do you have peripheral neuropathy? Do you have any vision or hearing changes? Do you have a, a skeletal myopathy? All of those things, do you look syndromic with you know, a short stature or a facial um, abnormality? All of those things are going to help to lead you down a different path. Then you get to your exam and to your EKG. And as you mentioned on the EKG, if there is a discrepancy between the voltage that you're seeing and the degree of hypertrophy that can be a sign of a more advanced stage of amyloid. We also see in some of the other mimickers, for example, Fabry disease, we can see a short PR interval, PRKG cardiomyopathy, the same. Um, in Dannon disease and also in PRKG2 cardiomyopathy, we can see ventricular pre-excitation. So that would be another red flag. So there are a number of things that you can pick up on, on the EKG. Then you move to more diagnostic testing in terms of the echo. And classically, with sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you may see abnormalities of the mitral valve, including elongation of the anterior mitral leaflet, papillary muscle abnormalities, left ventricular crypts. All of those signs would push you more towards a sarcomeric HCM, as opposed to if you see more concentric hypertrophy, if you're starting to see thickening of the other valves, if you see a pericardial effusion, all of those signs might push you towards an infiltrative cardiomyopathy or, or cardiac amyloid. One red flag that I think is a big one and kind of a fork in the road is if you see an abnormal ejection fraction, if you're getting an ejection fraction less than 50%, then really the red flag should be up. Is this an advanced state of HCM or is this something else? So that's a big one um, by echo. Um, you know, excellent uh, points there. Um, and I think for the uh, listeners who are who are tuning in to to listen to the differential diagnosis here, I think something which may be helpful for them would be, um, okay, now you have a patient in front of you and um, you are going over your differential. Um, and you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more that if you don't know about these, you wouldn't even think of them. You know, I'm just gonna um, borrow this um, this quote from my father saying that if the mind does not know, the eyes will not see. Um, 
so you have this patient in, in front of you and, and you are um, interpreting all the diagnostic data, including the ECOM. And mostly, I think w- w- when a referral is made uh, to, you know, to someone like yourself, uh, I think uh, some of the um, diagnostic tools that have already been utilized uh, for the workup are certainly an EKG and ECHO, you know, at times even a cardiac MRI. Um, how do you then uh, um, approach um, sort of with a, with a panel of diagnostic tests to sort of rule out the mimickers from HCM? Is, was, would that be a fair question? I mean, do you order blood work uh, on all of them? And um, I think as an extension to that question, and if you do, then what is what comprises that panel of blood work? Um, and I think sort of an extension to that question will be, uh, you know, to then talk about genetic testing and sort of when do you bring up genetic testing uh, in that conversation and how do you go about uh, genetic testing in your patients? Great. So let's break those down. So after the standard EKG and echo, then we typically do move to an MRI. I would say the vast majority of our patients um, in 2023 do end up getting a cardiac MRI at some point in their evaluation. Um, So we use the cardiac MRI for more accurate wall thickness measurements, more detail on anatomy. And importantly, cardiac MRI can give us tissue characterization above and beyond what we can see on echo. So part of that are the the mapping techniques that are available with T1 and T2 mapping, and also the assessment and distribution of late gadolinium enhancement. And there are particular patterns that we would expect in patients with sarcomeric HCM, for example, patchy mid-myocardial delayed enhancement that occurs in the areas uh, that are hypertrophied. It would be classic for sarcomeric HCM, whereas a subendocardial or even transmural, more diffuse pattern may be more common in amyloid. And a pattern in the you know, infralateral wall of enhancement may be more prevalent in febrase. So there are some specific findings that lead you down one path or another on MRI. And we absolutely use um, blood work and you know other serologies and genetic testing as part of the diagnostic workup. And we typically do this in a stage fashion. We start with the history, the physical, um, and critically important, which we haven't mentioned yet, is the family history. So in each patient we see in clinic, we do a multi-generation pedigree or family history that's done by one of our genetic counselors. And so we use that information to see the pattern of inheritance because that too can tell you whether you're dealing with an autosomal dominant condition like sarcomeric HCM, whether you're dealing with an X-linked condition like Fabre or Dannon disease, or even an autosomal recessive or mitochondrial um, condition that has a maternal inheritance pattern. So we take all of that information, EKG, echo, MRI, and then we move to um, any kind of blood work. Now, in terms of blood work, I would say that it's frequent that we do an assessment for um, amyloid, AL amyloid, so an SPEP, a UPEP um, assessment of light chains in a patient who is older than 50 or 60 years of age. Um, we also do an assessment for alpha galactosides 
phytase A level, which is the enzyme that is deficient in Fabry disease and can be helpful in males with Fabre, but not as helpful in females who may have some enzymatic activity. So we do some blood work there. We're looking for involvement of kidney disease, which can be seen in Fabry disease and amyloid, for example. So uh, other organ involvement can help us. We're looking at a CK level, which again, if you see abnormalities or high CK levels, you're thinking about a skeletal myopathy. Um, that can be Dannon disease, for example, that can involve the uh, peripheral uh, skeletal muscle. So that's the typical blood work that we look at. Um, and then we move on to talk about genetic testing. Now, in our clinic, we do a genetic counseling visit with a dedicated genetic counselor for all of our new patients. They help us with that pedigree and family history. And then we also talk that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and many of these other conditions can be inherited. And so we do um, a nice broad discussion about the importance of understanding that and the implications for family members. And at the very least, we suggest that family members, first degree family members, which are parents if they're living, siblings and children if the patient has them, get a clinical screening evaluation. That means that they get, <clears throat> excuse me, an EKG, an echo, and a visit with the cardiologist to listen to their heart. And we also talk about the option for genetic testing. The process of genetic testing in the United States is fairly straightforward. Um, here at Penn, we use a commercial lab, one of several, to do panel genetic testing. And we do this only after the patient undergoes a counseling session to understand what the yield is, what the benefits are, and what the potential downsides of genetic testing are. And that's really critically important to do upfront ahead of the genetic testing. Yeah, no, the incredibly, um, um, in incredibly useful, uh, you know, teaching nuggets uh, in that answer. And, you know, thank you um, so much for sharing your expertise there. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, so diving into, what options can manifest uh, when someone um, goes through genetic testing for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Um, I know there is uh, a panel of genes which is commonly encountered uh, in a subset of patients with HCM. And then, you know, obviously uh, there are mutations which occur sporadically as well, which have not yet been identified with HCM. Um, how how would you uh, break that algorithm for us? You know, in terms of, let's say, for example, you have a patient in whom you order genetic testing. Now you have the test which has resulted positive, which has identified a gene which we know is associated with sarcomeric HCM. Um, I think that would, if that gene then is also detected in the family member who then does not have the phenotype, I think let's start with with that subset. Uh, how do you solve that puzzle? Sure. So let's take a step back even before we get to that stage. When we're talking about genetic testing for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the typical yield we think of um, is up to 60% of patients in whom we can find a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant. 
And that yield varies widely based on the age of their patient, their family history, and their comorbidities. And what I mean by that, if a patient is diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy at a relatively young age, less than say 40 years of age or 45 years of age, the yield of genetic testing is going to be higher in that patient to find a sarcomeric variant. If a patient has a known family history of HCM, and you can see it transversing uh, through generations, then again, the yield on genetic testing is going to be higher. And if you have an older patient with no family history and a diagnosis of systemic hypertension, then the yield on your genetic testing for finding a monogenic single variant cause of HCM is going to be lower. What we don't clinically test for currently is polygenic HCM, where a number of variants may be coming together to form the phenotype of HCM. Now, that will be coming in the years to come, but currently our panel of testing is to look for monogenic single DNA changes that lead to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And in those panels, as you mentioned, are a number of genes that are sequenced, the eight core sarcomere protein genes, and also other genes that have been associated with HCM or one of the mimickers of HCM. So in a standard HCM panel these days, commercial panel, you'll find the gene for Febre disease, which is GLA. You'll find the PRKAG2 gene. You'll find transthyretin or TTR for amyloid. You'll find LAMP2 gene for Danin, and then a number of genes for Noonan, et cetera. So those mimickers, in case you don't pick them up in your clinical history and evaluation, will still be sequenced if you select the right genetic testing panel. And as you talked about results, let's just go through what those results can be. So there's three main buckets of results that we get from genetic testing. One is what we call a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant. Those are changes in the DNA, which we think are associated with the disease phenotype. So we think they're causative of the disease. There's benign variants, which we don't think are associated with the disease phenotype. And then there's a gray zone in the middle. We call those variants variants of uncertain significance or VUSs. Those are the bane of our existence and of our genetic counselor's um, um, existence because that doesn't tell us much. It's in a gray zone. It could be associated with the phenotype or with the disease you're looking at, or it could be completely benign. So let's take the first bucket first, the pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants. That means that we're relatively certain that this variant that we've identified could be the cause of disease in this family. And it's important that we start the genetic testing with someone who has phenotypic evidence of disease. That means their heart is thick, they have clinical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If we find a pathogenic variant in that individual, then we can use that information to risk stratify their unaffected family members. So then you take their child, for example, you do an echo, an EKG, there is no evidence of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but they want to know their risk of developing HCM at some point in their life. And we know it can occur at any time during their life. So that person may decide to get genetic testing not for the full panel of genes, but this time just for the one pathogenic variant that was identified in their affected family member. And we know that it's autosomal dominant, dominant transmission in HCM. So it's a 50-50 chance that that father passed it on to their child and a 50-50 chance for each subsequent child. 
And if the child um, inherited that pathogenic variant, then that puts them in what we call the genotype positive, but phenotype negative category, meaning their heart is currently normal by ECHO, by EKG, but they're at risk to de develop disease at some point in the future. Those are patients who we watch carefully. We bring them back to clinic every few years, depending on what their heart looks like. And we watch to see if they're developing disease. And more importantly, we tell them any new symptoms, anything that seems off, then you come back sooner and let us check out your heart and see if you're developing disease. This is the population where in the future, um, we hope to develop therapies that may delay or prevent onset of disease. And a recently published trial with uh, Carolyn Ho as the lead um, investigator, the VANISH study, looked at just this. It looked at patients who were genotype positive and their phenotype was either mild or negative to see if valsartan could attenuate progression of hypertrophy. So again, these, this is the paradigm now shifting to earlier identification so that hopefully we'll be able to mitigate disease progression. Yeah, no, this is, uh, this is terrific. I actually learned a lot. Um, thank you for going over it so systematically with us and, and explaining the minute details. Um, so, you know, you mentioned uh, bringing them back every few years. Now, I'm talking about the subset, which is genotype positive, phenotype negative. Um, when they ask you about, um, you know, safety for engaging in exercise, and I know that there was a recent paper in JAMA Cardiology from, from I believe, Yale, uh, you know, looking at exercise specifically in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, which showed that it was safe. But, uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll have you. Um, you know, teach us more on this. How do you answer that question for them? Um, and, and, you know, I'm sort of extrapolating from my own personal experience as a clinician, you know, having taken care of, taken care of one such patient. Yeah, it can, it can be a tough situation, but I would say that we have moved now in the field of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and in other cardiomyopathies to, to really engage in shared decision-making and that it's not a one-size-fits-all decision. And the patient really needs to engage with their HCM um, you know, physician. And ideally, this is someone with expertise in HCM. And even within HCM experts, there are those that are focused, uh, more dedicated in in terms of understanding exercise physiology and really counseling patients um, in a sophisticated way who want to engage in competitive sports or very intense sports. I would say for the vast majority of our patients with HCM, nearly all of them, we encourage mild to moderate aerobic activity because exercise we know is good for everyone. So again, that is kind of a paradigm shift. We are not telling patients with HCM to become sedentary or to avoid exercise, we are encouraging mild to moderate aerobic activity that's done in a safe way for nearly everyone. Um, there may be minor exceptions to that, but really not much. And if you're getting to competitive sports or highly intense, vigorous sports, that's where you really need an HCM expert. Um, and what we typically do is do a thorough phenotyping. We put them on the treadmill. We do Holter monitors to understand if they're at risk for arrhythmia. We have our imaging data serially, and we have our exercise data serially. And we try to do a uh, sophisticated risk assessment. Um, and again, in shared decision-making, decide with the patient, what level of risk they're comfort, comfortable with and what they want to pursue. Um, excellent. And, you know, I, 
I think it's this is a good um, moment in the uh, podcast episode to uh, sort of learn from you uh, a little bit more about offering patients defibrillator therapy. I know there are specific guideline criteria for ascertaining risk for sudden death in patients with HCM. I know it's an unpredictable disease. I also know it's heterogeneous uh, uh, with regard to you know when it becomes manifest um, in patients. It could certainly could become manifest later in life. And from from what I've learned from when I was in fellowship, um, you know, was that uh, you know as you age, it becomes a negative risk predictor for having for for manifesting sudden death. Um, you know, as one of the manifestations for for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, there has been um, I don't know if controversy is a, is a is is a word that I want to use here, um, but sort of a, a, a debate maybe if not a controversy as to whether the European Society of Cardiology risk calculator is uh, a, a befitting risk predictor for sudden death in patients with HCM and whether that should be used routinely in uh, when evaluating patients in clinic and ascertaining that decision, because that is another big decision for these patients, particularly when they are young. Subjecting someone to defibrillator therapy for the rest of their life, lives I think is an important decision. What do you have to say there? Because I, I and I know that the the U.S. guidelines have certain, you know, risk factors. You know, like um, if there is a hypertensive response to exercise on on the treadmill, or if the, um, you know, septal thickness is over thirty, or if there's a family history of sudden death, or if there's history of syncope, or not sustained VT. But you know, I'll stop here. I'll, I'll let you speak. Yeah, I hesitate to jump into the um, U.S. versus European debate on this. There, there is a lot of um, interesting data that that takes you know we take into account when we're doing a sudden death risk assessment. Um, I'll give you my personal approach, and I don't know what's right and what's wrong, and I, I hope that we'll become more sophisticated as a field in terms of understanding um, sudden death risk and really moving forward with risk stratification because. Right now, uh, you know, it is still somewhat crude. Um, so my approach is to use all of the data we have. So I will use the ESC risk calculator. I also, of course, use the U.S. guidelines that, as you mentioned, have just even one high-risk feature as being sufficient to offer a prophylactic ICD. I use all of that information combined because I really feel like we need to personalize our approach to this. And as you mentioned, you Patients have different thresholds for wanting procedures. They have different thresholds for accepting risk. And it's very important to have a conversation with that patient and say, here are here is the data that we know, here are your high-risk features, here are your low-risk features, and this is our best assessment of what we think your risk is. And you'll find that some patients are more of a blanket um, philosophic approach. And then there are other patients who really want very specific quantitative risk assessment. And so there may be some patients that really gravitate towards that ESC risk score and say, okay, I'm at 8%, I'm at high risk, and I want to move forward with the defibrillator. There are others that have a very strong family history that has been psychologically detrimental and, you know, scarring to them with sudden death, sudden death in a first degree relative at a young age. And they say just that 
in and of itself, I'm ready for a defibrillator. There are other patients who would say, I'm okay with the risk of sudden death and I prefer not to have an intervention. I don't want to live with a device and I understand my risk. And I think all of those answers and options are completely valid and it depends on the patient. So I use all of the information that we have and I kind of tailor it to the patient. Yes, and you know, specifically I want to ask you here is, um, does the percentage of late gadolinium enhancement burden on MRI, cardiac MRI, um, sort of shift you one way or the other in better quantifying individualized risk for your patients? And I'll add one more aspect to this. Does the presence or absence of apical aneurysm shift you one way or the other as well? Yes. So both of those, you know, have been added to the latest set of American guidelines, the 2020 guidelines in terms of burden of hypertrophy with a threshold being about 15% or higher um, and the presence of really any size of apical aneurysm. So both of them I do use in our assessment of risk for risk of sudden death. Um, with an apical aneurysm, I typically do recommend um, consideration of a prophylactic defibrillator. And I use the percent of delayed enhancement as sort of a risk modifier. And what I mean by that is if you have a patient who has a few short runs of non-sustained VT, and you're not sure, should you really be taking that um, you know, very seriously and saying they need a defibrillator? Because we do find short runs of non-sustained VT in quite a number of patients, particularly with um, lengthening our monitoring times, the use of the patch, um, you know, ambulatory monitors, we're getting two weeks of data on many patients, and then you do find short runs of non-sustained VT. But in that sort of a patient where I'm a little bit borderline or a little bit on the fence, um, you know, or their hypertrophy is getting toward three centimeters, but it hasn't quite reached there, I would use the percent of uh, late gadolinium enhancement as a risk modifier. And in those patients with a little bit of non-sustained VT or not quite three centimeters, if I'm seeing a lot of delayed enhancement, I absolutely use that as a modifier to say, I think we should think about a defibrillator. Is there a particular number you're looking at? I mean, is it 15%, 12%, 6%? What is your number? Yeah, it's another really great question. It's about 15%, I would say. Um, but that goes with the caveat of how people are measuring delayed enhancement. And we see a lot of variability with what the techniques are, what the images are. So here we will generally review the images if they're done elsewhere and do our own reassessment and calculation um, or do an MRI at our institution. Because again, we do see variability and what's called uh, for a percent of delayed enhancement in the technical evaluation and in the interpretation. So it's another area like uh, you know others where we really need more standardization in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the, the diagnostic testing and the um, assessment of risk. So uh, we typically do the MRI ourselves or do a independent assessment of the quantification. Yes, yeah, so, you know, I think it's... Um... It's um, such a fascinating uh, disease complex because, you know, it involves almost every facet of subspecialty cardiology, you know, right from, you know, advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology to electrophysiology, to genetic counseling, to cardiac imaging, uh, to, um, you know, interventional cardiology. Now, I know that we as interventionalists have sort of fallen out of favor just a little bit because of other septal reduction therapies out there. Um, 
but in terms of um, the overarching um, sort of diagnos- uh, therapeutic approach, I mean, I know we've talked about diagnoses a lot here. In terms of therapeutic approaches, how do you um, think about these patients? You know, and I can share with you how I think about them. I think that'll be a good starting point for the listenership. I mean, I want to think about septal reduction indicated, yes or no, because there's also non-obstructive HCM, as we've learned in in, in previous episodes for this mini-series. Uh, then there is management of maybe angina or heart failure. And then there is a completely separate discussion on risk of sudden death. Am I thinking correctly here? I do think that's a reasonable way to approach it. You know, our um, hemodynamic classification has the early branch point of obstructive versus non-obstructive, at least currently with our current treatment paradigms that may shift in the future. So that hemodynamic assessment, symptomatology is also very important. And then we think of that sudden death risk, not separately, but as its own risk assessment, because there are people who are non-obstructive, obstructive, you know, that can have uh, equally high sudden death risk. So I agree with you that I would uh, think of that as its own category, related um, to the others, but um, deserving of its own um, consideration. And in terms of the treatment paradigms, you know, I think our 2020 guidelines um, outlined them very well, but did not include the latest clinical trial data, of course, for the cardiac myosin inhibitors. So we'll be looking to updates of the guidelines as to how to incorporate the new cardiac myosin inhibitor, Mavicamptin, which is F- the FDA-approved CMI, um, and how we are going to incorporate uh, Mavicamptin into our treatment paradigm. And I'm sure you've discussed this with the prior um, my colleagues who did the prior podcast, but I think that offering patients the option for Mavicamptin if they meet the criteria of being symptomatic and having obstructive HCM, that's class two or three NYHA, that those are the patients that we are currently offering the treatment to. And that spans from patients who are class two and relatively ambulatory and feeling okay for the most part, but still having limitations with uh, exercise, typically dipping on exertion, all the way to patients who have advanced disease that is refractory to our first and second line therapies and who are actively considering septal reduction therapy. So I don't think we've quite put you out of business. We did two alcohol ablations this week here. So we are absolutely still utilizing both alcohol ablation and septal myectomy. But again, it comes down to the patient and what their preference is. And we have some patients who say, I don't want to take a pill for the rest of my life. I'd rather get a a one-time intervention and at least get rid of my obstruction, although they know they're not getting rid of their disease. And we have other patients who would much rather take a medication every day for the rest of their lives. And um, you never really know until you talk with your patient and their family which camp they're in. And I think that is on us as HCM physicians. It's really to offer all of the options and guard, guide our patients through what the treatment strategy can be. Um, yes, no, no, thank you. Um, and so for um, septal reduction, and, and I'm going to uh, request you to, uh, you know, certainly um, your center, how um, you practice uh, offering alcohol septal ablation versus septal myectomy to patients. Um, 
Is there a dichotomy with regard to age for you uh, uh, in particular that you take into account when you're offering either or to patients? I, I mean, I know there's a component of shared decision-making here. And I think with the advent of cardiac myosin inhibitors uh, and the FDA approval of Navicamton, I think that discussion will become even more uh, enriched. Um, but sort of how do you approach patients with, for example, you know, if, if someone has, if someone is eligible for all three options, how do you approach that discussion with the patient? So here we use a heart team approach. So we have as part of our heart team, a cardiologist who is a specialist in HCM, an interventional cardiologist and a cardiac surgeon. Um, and it's the three individuals. We bring each case to a multidisciplinary monthly meeting, which is our septal reduction therapy meeting, and we discuss all of the cases. So we review the imaging, we review the you know clinical findings, we review the symptoms, and as a group, we try to understand what the patient would be eligible for. Um, in conjunction, of course, with the shared decision making with the patient themselves. But I would say. Uh, just as a blanket sort of generalization that we typically are not doing alcohol septal ablations in very young patients, 20s, 30s, even 40s, who have massive hypertrophy uh, because we just have not seen as good results in that population. And they get a more definitive, durable, lifelong uh, result with a properly done um, you know, septal myectomy. Um, because of your question about age. But other than that, if a patient is a candidate for all three and their anatomy is amenable, then we um, ask the patient uh, what their preference is. Um, excellent. Well, um, you know, Dr. Owens, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. And, you know, I've, I've learned a lot, um, you know, just with, with the short time that I've spent you here. Is there anything you think we have not covered which you'd like to share with our listenership? I think that I didn't, I forgot to round out the conversation on the results of genetic testing. And I think this is an important take-home point. So we talked about the patients who have a pathogenic or disease-causing variant identified and how we can then use that variant for cascade testing and risk stratification of family members. But I neglected to say what we do when the genetic testing is negative in that proband or the patient with HCM. And in those situations, if the Genetic, the pedigree or the family history tells us that there is familial disease. You can see it passing from generation to generation. That just means we're not smart enough to identify the variant. And in those patients, it's very important that their family members undergo ongoing, lifelong clinical screening with EKG and echo because they are still at risk to develop the disease. And that's an important point. And the other point is that if you have that gray zone variant, the variant of uncertain significance, that we typically do not test unaffected family members for a variant of uncertain significance. And that's because it's not going to change what we do. And so we put that VUS to the side and we continue clinical screening with ECHO and EKG of the at-risk family members. And the person who we might test for the VUS in the family is another individual who turns up with disease, with evidence of HCM, then we may track the variant in that individual. And then over time, as you look through the generations, you might find that the variant is either tracking with disease in the family, which may elevate its status to pathogenic, 
or that it's not tracking with disease, in which case it would be downgraded. So I think that's another um, just important point to round out how we use the genetic testing. Excellent. You know, thank you for bringing that to the fore. I think, you know, those are extremely important discussion points, you know, certainly need to know how to handle, you know, a negative test as well as, you know, BUS, which, you know, certainly um, at that point in time, I would be referring uh, these patients to, you know, someone like yourself. Um, you know, Dr. Owens, thanks again for, for doing this for us. Uh, I know this has been very enlightening for me uh, and has been a befitting uh, you know, finale episode for the mini series, which, you know, again, was, um, you know, brought to all of us by an unrestricted educational grant from Bristol Myers and Squibb. Um, once again, to our listenership, thank you for tuning in and listening uh, to our fascinating guests. And if you have any feedback, uh, do send us, um, you know, personal um, emails, um, or even, you know, social media, or, uh, you know, drop us a review uh, on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts, uh, and we'll see you again another Monday. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.